Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 to 6, and 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came in the into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And from Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may reclaim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. good for sound? Good, good. Let me pray before I speak, because uh, this is always serious work standing up here talking about God. Um, Father, uh, may the words of my mouth and uh, the meditations of my heart, that line from the Psalms, uh, be a prayer from me uh, for this time and uh, for uh, this people. May we understand more of your character, of your great love through Jesus Christ and our purpose and a role in this world at this time. For we ask it as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when uh, some of you watched the uh, grand final last week, in the stands at the MCG were, in round fingers, 100,000 people. If your imagination allows you, multiply that crowd 20 times and you get about 2 million. 
and if you don't watch football, then think of the uh, largest crowd you've seen massed in the streets of Hong Kong. The pan of a camera, the sweep of a camera across a crowd buried between buildings probably picks up 100,000 people. Well, multiply that 20 times and you've got around 2 million people. That is, if your imagination allows. If you believe the numbers, and I do, then there were 2 million people camped around Mount Sinai. The mountain's not covered with snow and fir trees like those uh, calendars that you buy from Coorong and you can't hear the sound of running water in the background. Sorry, I'm having a shot at Coorong and the holy hardware that we get flogged at Christmas time. But most likely it's, the mountain is barren and imposing. Somewhere near the top, invisible to any of that crowd of two million around the foot of the mountain, is a man called Moses having a conversation with God in words that I'll repeat again and again this morning, up close and personal is his conversation. He'll do that at least four times over the next few months. But where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19, this is the first time and Moses gets a simple message about God's plan for the crowd at the foot of the mountain. It's worth asking the question, how did such a crowd get to this barren place? Well, simply they'd walked slowly for the last three months towards the east and away from Egypt. Were they happy campers? The backstory of the last three months tells you and I that the answer is definitely no. They'd grumbled against Moses and God and wished things were like they had in Egypt. There is absolutely no reason to think that they were keen to be there at the foot of the mountain and ready to adopt a God-pleasing lifestyle. They weren't putting up their hand like Kath and Kim saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. In fact, you can take the temperature by understanding that in the little over 40 days, even with seeing God's special effects on the mountain, they will be worshipping a golden bull and doing dodgy stuff with one another in what can best be described as a two million strong dance party and orgy. Why bring all that up? Simply because this or that background is often neglected and it magnifies that word mercy, uh, which is much more than grace. The mercy of God of including them in his covenant. I'm back to that word again for those of you who remember when I was here a month ago. In that reading, there are those two words, very, very important words, my covenant, in verse 5. 
You can easily read the six verses that were read for us and overlook them. The words, my covenant, are not the words, our covenant. God is the broker of his covenant and his covenant will continue with or without the crowd at the foot of the mountain. What covenant is God talking about? Well, you'll have to believe me because there's no time to prove it this morning. God's covenant is his commitment sometime, somehow, to restore some members of humanity into a relationship with himself like that that he had with Abram and along with this up-close and personal relationship, sometime, somehow, to recreate the world without pain and frustration and alienation. This understanding of the importance of God's covenant and his invitation to these unhappy campers to be part of something bigger, in other words, to have God up close and personal, is in fact the background of the giving of the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. You cannot and will not appreciate the giving of the Ten Commandments if you neglect these verses. I said it a month ago when I was standing here. The covenant idea gives shape and structure to the story of the whole Bible. But it's not always recognised. Even the giving of the Ten Commandments is premised on God talking about His covenant. Now again, because I don't have the time, I'm going to parachute you into the scene and the drop zone is clearly outlined in that string of words that I'm going to draw your attention to. They describe from various angles the consequence of having God up close and personal for a nation and not just for a man like Abraham. The first few words that I want to draw your attention to are treasured possession. God says that the choice is theirs to be his treasured possession among all peoples. Is that a privileged position? Yes, but it's not meant to lead to elitism or even worse, a racism. When God says they will be his treasured possession, the metaphor is used at that time in history of the private wealth of a king. Now English has taken that metaphor of treasured possession and regrettably applied it to a child's favourite teddy bear or some heirloom handed down in the family. You need to overcome the use of the metaphor today and instead think in terms of all the peoples of the world as God's kingdom, whether they acknowledge it or not, and amongst those, God is anticipating, if they will have it, that they will have access to him, unique access. In my words, again, up close and personal, because they will embody what he intended for human beings. 
the Bible's uh, consistent take on the geographic boundaries and ethnicity is that all of the world is God's creation. Despite what you might think, he still controls the course of the history of the world and its people. But for reasons that are wrapped up in mystery and God being God, he is proposing to continue his special sort of love for what can only be described as unhappy campers. Is he trying to improve their self-esteem? Just like we are encouraged to tell our children that they are special despite their failures. I say it cautiously, I may get shot down later on, but often that's psychological manipulation. God doesn't do that. He doesn't need to. He's just kept his promise from 600 years ago by delivering them from the world's superpower of the day. He's just fed and watered two million people for over two months. There's a cloud by day and a column of fire by night. Special effects, if you like. Special effects which says to everyone who lifts their eyes from the trail that they are accompanied by the supernatural. They've already experienced a foretaste of what the status of being his treasured possession will be like. In effect, he's asking them, are you ready? And more importantly, are you willing for God to take you to the next level? If you look quickly down at um, the text in uh, your order of service, which looks like I didn't uh, bring up with me, but I may get because I'll make reference to it. It was just there. Thanks, James. If you look quickly down at verse 5, the words treasured possession are followed quickly by that description. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think a treasured possession is probably partly explained by those words, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All things being equal, and they, that is, the nation, grow up and get over their series of hissy fits for the last couple of months, God says his covenant, my covenant, <coughs> will provide you with unparalleled access to him. In effect, private, privileged access to him. This is what is meant by that expression, kingdom of priests. In any culture, priests are servants of the God who is worshipped. God intends his covenant to open up access to him in an outstanding way. Now, it's, how, it's a bit of hard work to work out just how much to include in those words because we know as we read the story of Exodus that the office of priest is yet, yet to be created in Israel the, through Aaron and his sons. So it's reasonable to think that the administration of the sacrificial system is not the, not the focus here because that was their special role. <coughs> so priesthood means some sort of 
privileged access that is open to absolutely everyone at the foot of the mountain. It's reasonable to think that God intends to live in their midst, to speak to them as a king speaks to his subjects, to restore their relationship, ultimately, ultimately to something like what Adam and Eve originally had in the garden. But I'm not going there this morning because it takes me too far off target to go back there today. All I want to say is kingdom of peace uh, priests means everyone, everyone will have access up close and personal as he originally intended. It's possible that the next expression, holy nation, is another take on the same idea and gives further depth to that metaphor of treasured possession. Let me quickly break up the metaphor and then put the pieces back together like Duplo or Lego. First, a nation. A nation is a special grouping that has land, history and identity. God plans his covenant for these people (coughs) that they will ultimately inhabit the very navel of the then known word. That's N-A-V-L, not N-A-V-A-L. The belly button of the then known world. What's the belly button of the then known world? It's that land bridge that we call Palestine today. It's at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Because everybody walked or took camels or followed oxen or rode donkeys or whatever else uh, uh, they used for transport to get from Asia to Africa, (coughs) from Africa to Europe, you had to walk through the navel of the earth the land of Palestine. That was to be the land that made them a nation, a land described as one flowing with milk and honey, the frequent refrain which is used in the Bible. That's nation. What about holy? Holy talks of identity. Now, I'm well aware that holy has suffered demeaning in our culture and has come to mean somehow sort of set apart or squeaky clean or pure in a way that often makes me wince. This is very unfortunate. Holy simply means an identity committed to the plans and priorities of the God whose covenant they will experience day by day. So I put both of those words together. That means that were they willing to enter into God's covenant relationship where God will be up close and personal, they can expect a land where their identity is defined and visible to the world, to the watching world, as they do the plans and priorities of the God they serve. Now I could do a lot more in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 19, but I really need to um, transition at this point and hopefully take all of you with me. 
So far, all I've done is parachute you into an epical scene and lightly explore several of the metaphor, metaphors that God uses for those who want to be up close and personal. In effect, for those, God says, who want to be a part of his covenant. And you are right if you're thinking it. I can't see any speech bubbles above your heads, but I know from members of my family that they're saying about this point, you've done, you've done um, 16 minutes, so what? <laughs> what has this old story got to do with us, you? living in and around Fremantle in the last quarter of 2019. So I'll respond, funny you should ask that. Where's Andy? There he is, right in front of me. Andy, I think someone did a cover version of Exodus 19. Ah. For those of you not familiar with the image, and I checked it out on Google, not being musical at all, cover version just means a remake a new performance of an old song by someone other than the original artist. Sound like a good definition? Passes master good. Well, if you look at Peter's words <coughs> in the second reading, in your order of service, especially those words that are there in the very first verse, Peter calls first century people living in the back blocks of Turkey, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. <coughs> Am I the only one who asks the question, where did Peter get these words from? It's obvious. He took God's words to those unhappy campers around the foot of Mount Sinai and audaciously reapplied them to Christians. <laughs> He's actually guilty of plagiarism if he didn't have permission and prompting of someone close to the original speaker, which is my indirect way of saying the Holy Spirit's at work and Jesus says, yes, use these words for his people. Let me try and give you a heads up on what is happening. Did those unhappy campers at the foot of Mount Sinai welcome the prospect of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, participating in effect in being God's treasured possession? The sad story is that even though they heard God speak and saw all the special effects on the mountain, as I said earlier, within about 40 days, they will be involved in full-blown idolatry and ready to give Moses the flick. Did God keep pursuing his covenant plans despite their apostasy? Yes, he did. And eventually a man came who was what he intended for all human beings. It's a fundamental mistake to read those words in 1 Peter and think nothing has changed. And Peter's just taking old metaphors and revving them up for his audience. 
In one sweeping sentence, let me say, God's son, his treasured possession. That's why he calls him a son. As we know, or as Lee may have told you again and again, directly and indirectly, that son is a king and a priest, all rolled in one, but I don't have time to go there this morning. He's holy because he's devoted to God so that we really, really understand what holy means. And in the end he dies and he rises again. And God's covenant is now with those who have faith in him. What has all this got to do with you? Well, you need to understand your identity more thoroughly. Not as male and female, young, old, American, Australian, whatever other identifiers of identity there are here this morning. It actually seems to me as an ageing Australian that we're in the midst of some sort of profound identity crisis. And I want to say to younger people, people younger than me, that much of the angst and the uh, tension and the depression and the uncertainty and the, the, you know, where is everything and what's happening and where do I belong, gets sorted out when you get clear on your identity. The easiest way I know of capturing all that Peter says to you in the early spring of 2019 is to say that each of you has a dual citizenship if you follow, love and serve Jesus. Most of you are citizens of Australia. However, if I follow the lead of Peter's words, then if Jesus is your Lord, your King, you are citizens of a greater commonwealth, one where God the Father and Jesus his Son rule over all the details of your life. You have in effect dual citizenship being supportive of Australian values, <coughs> participating in Australian life and at the same time being holy and devoted to Jesus' values and being, if you like, a priesthood with access, unique access to Jesus and participation in his kingdom. You have dual citizenship. But the problem with dual citizenship is that many times, maybe increasingly in the future, commitment to God conflicts with commitment to this country where you hold a passport. And I know only too well from long experience that when you come to grips with this idea of holding dual citizenship, when push comes to shove, regrettably, unfortunately, it's easier to ditch God and Jesus that solves the citizenship question. Then 
there's no trouble because you look like a good Australian citizen. You aren't conflicted because you're trying to follow the plans and priorities of God. Now, when I was last here, I said God's covenant in terms of the big storyline of the Bible is like the skeleton which gives structure and support to the whole story. When my son-in-law fillets the fish, it exposes a delicate skeleton of the fish. Now, Peter doesn't use the word covenant in what he says, but there's absolutely no doubt in my mind about what idea supports this list of metaphors. You are a chosen race because God's covenant uh, continues. You are a royal priesthood, even though you might be Turks in the back blocks of uh, Turkey. You are a holy nation because God's covenant continues. You are a special possession for God because right down to 2019, God's covenant continues. Will you? Will you come to grips with this idea of being dual citizens? Especially when it becomes increasingly difficult in my growing up days, uh, it was possible because there was a lot of <coughs> Christian nominalism, the, the overlap between uh, being Christian and being Australian was very substantial. There's a drift now. Being Australian and Australian values and being Christian and Christian values are now separating. You only have to watch the news and understand what's being proposed in legislation in this state and in other places. Let me finish with a, another illustration just so I satisfy my children. <laughs> they always say I've got, to have a, I've got to have an illustration. Everybody knows what this is. You can see it from a distance. A babushka doll. What's the prominent feature of a babushka doll? If my children, grandchildren haven't sucked it, I'll get, be able to get it apart because the timber swells. Um, a babushka doll has this remarkable um, structure that... This one is swollen. Um, anyway, I won't try and take it apart. Um, there's successive little dolls um, that are duplicates of uh, these two inside. I think it's helpful to think of, no, I am sure it is helpful to understand the unfolding of the covenant, God's commitment to restore the world and bring people into a new relationship with him through the course of time, to be something like a babushka. Because as you expose this skeleton, which I'll call the covenant, it um, progressively um, reveals more and more of what's involved in God's big plan. 
so that if you started off with, uh, I haven't got it quite the right way around, but if you started off with this as the covenant with Noah that I introduced you to a month ago, we find out what that covenant with Noah um, means in greater detail. It means a nation who's a treasured possession, a holy nation, a special group of people if they'll participate. If they won't participate, then God will find people who will love unconditionally and make into a nation. He'll give people in, um, in uh, Fremantle another citizenship and make them part of his covenant plans. And if you have me back in a month's time, you'll find out what the next part of the unfolding of the babushka is. I got it. <laughs> because, because in those words to Abraham, there's not only a nation, but there's also a king. And if you have me back, I'll introduce you to the idea of kingship with, um, with David and the consequences of that for people like you and I today. So it's a way of thinking. It's, a, it's either a skeleton, if that helps you, because a skeleton gives, us, <coughs> gives shape and structure to, a, to an organism and the covenant idea does that. Or if you're more given to these sort of things, then it's like a babushka as you... As you read the story of the covenant as it unfolds throughout the <clears throat> pages of the Bible, you get more and more and more and more. Let me pray. Um, Father, uh, when we... Uh, yeah, I suppose wherever we scratch in the Bible, uh, it's not... The idea of uh, your commitment to restore the world and uh, bring a special people to yourself is not far from the surface. Uh, as we live in uh, these um, changing times uh, where the issue of identity and our allegiance to you is uh, increasingly tested, um, uh, help us to understand how we may live with dual citizenship and uh, where there are times where our allegiance to you uh, calls more strongly than our allegiance to uh, the culture in which we live. Give us courage and conviction to stand. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.